0: Welcome to Lectionary. Call in for Tuesday, May 30th of 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. Today, we're gathering at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, he's not with us today. We look forward to having him back. And our other friend, our pastor, Bill Hull, is traveling and looks forward to rejoining us in a few weeks as well. Of course, that gives us a great opportunity to connect with the pastor of the church that makes this podcast possible. More on that in just a moment. This Sunday is June 4th, and we're working to be faithful to the lectionary gospel for year A on that Sunday. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion.
1: Sarah Mickelson in Tampa.
2: Nicole
0: Abdenor, Tampa. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I want to highlight, remember, Dr. Nicole, Nicole Abdenor is from Palmaceda Presbyterian Church, an associate pastor at his church that makes this podcast possible. Sarah and I, as the laypersons, always have a pack. We do not work, work without a net, we do not work without a pastor. And so this period for the next few weeks allows us to have special guests we care very much about. Nicole, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. Uh, Sarah Mickelson is on point today. She's going to read the Gospel Lectionary and guide us through a series of questions. Hello, my friend. I hope you're doing well today. Well, thank you, and I am glad to be here.
1: Um, we are looking at Matthew's account of the Great Commission. It comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Um, and I'm going to start with verse 16. Now, And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, so I should probably put that out there. Um, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the ages, or the end of the age. Um, and that re- that's the end of our scripture reading. Um, this is familiar ground for me. I don't know about you, it felt like familiar ground uh, in approaching it. Um, But I felt like the elephant in the room was in verse 17 where the words, but some doubted are found. Um, And so for me that um, sprung forward with a thought or three about how does that interact with the way faith works? How does doubt interact with faith? And so my questions stem from that. I have to say out loud that Janet Hunt's blog, Reverend Dr. Janet H. Hunt's blog, um, dated June 4, 2017, was especially helpful. Um, and she, at the end of her, um, I guess her, her posting, uh, often puts good questions that make me think, and this week's, or that particular blog's questions were specifically helpful. So I uh, lifted them, and I want to give um, good credit to where it's due. Um, Starting with question number one, what is your experience with doubt and faith? How did God make God's own self known to you then? And I'm going to go to Don first for this one. Don, do you Uh, have any experience with with doubt and faith?
0: Yes, ma'am. Yes, I do. Part of the experience is this is a familiar passage. Up with it, but you know the elephant in the room is the doubting sometimes, and it's ignored, and uh, just the ignoring of it is my position is kind of an affront to the faith. That you know the reporter of Matthew thinks that it's important to report it, and I think that's a challenge. I think it's a challenge of the commission itself that we have to talk about these things, both faith and doubt. Your questions are personal, so I'm going to say me and my which means I doubt I'm right, but I have faith that I can be guided by the spirit. So this is personal. My experience with doubt and faith uh, is, is that there is an interplay. You call it a dance in some of your questions. That she, I know it's, it, it's important because the two things shape my worldviews, the way I reflect, the way I respond to stimulus, threats, fear. Uh, it's at the center of everything. Why would I deny that? Why would Matthew choose not to write it in? He puts it there. So at this stage of my life, doubt seems to be related, uh, closely related to my observations of what isolation, loneliness, separation from others looks like. Uh, And I am thinking of the gospel when I say that. So faith comes into engagement in groups of people face to face and I see faith in the symbolism of literature so they're both everywhere why would I deny one and not deal with the other well I'd deny faith and just focus on doubt so just two quick points uh, one is and this is personal right uh, this could raise disagreements but the absolutes of either one of them or both of them are repulsive to me and I'm just saying that for my heart I don't want advance the traits or attributes of any of them and I I don't want to embody the extremes of either of them. So the idea of living in absolute doubt or absolute certain faith is not a place that is human and God God so loved the world, the human world Uh, and uh, I think absolute faith is associated in this absolutism fundamentalism and rigidity and tolerance and a lack of imagination. And it walls up people and it walls out people instead of building community. So it vi- ironically, faith violates the gospel. I'm saying of it's human beings. I'm not talking about the I am, human beings. And I also think absolute doubt is filled with despair and loneliness and distrust of community. It's unhinged, and it de- denies the value of community neither in their absolute form, has much to do with the Christ and the ministry that I've been reading about in Matthew. So I think I'm built to live in this middle space as a follower of the way. It's a calling. I'm confident in this posture because of love and the tangible things we do for each other. But I doubt my words should be followed by others because I don't have the absolute faith. I'm not sure. But I also doubt that doubt should be sanctioned by people or excluded or crossed out in this Matthew passage. It's about the way we can talk to each other. It's the way we're built, at least for myself. It's the way I'm built, and I'm supposed to dive into it not run away from it. That's my best shot at that.
1: Thank you, Don. Nicole, what are your thoughts? Have you any experience with doubt and faith?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I would say it's cyclical, and, and bef- it is a. As Don said, it is a sort of a. a per- it is a personal question, yet I would say it's a shared experience. Um, doubt and faith, and I think it's important for us to remember uh, that uh, doubt, and particularly as uh, the gospel writer in Matthew utilizes doubt. Doubt does not necessarily. Doubt doesn't mean the opposite of faith. It's not a. It's not a contrasting term. There's there's sort of a um, there's some movement I think with with doubt and there's some depths of layered meaning with the term doubt. I mean, doubt can mean wavering. It can be hesitant. I think we all have that experience, um, particularly in response. um, anything startling, anything jarring, anything traumatic, um, any point of crisis in our life, um, we would be naive to say um, that we've never wavered, that we've never hesitated. I think those are perhaps easier terms for people of faith to utilize. Matthew utilizes the term doubt, uh, which I think is an, is is important, but it's important for us to remember it doesn't mean that they were without faith. Um, that the two are not sort of synonymous and connected in that way. The other thing that I think it's important for us to remember as we consider this particular text is, in particularly since as the church, if you're a lectionary um, church, as as we at Palmasia uh, are, and as many Christians around the world are, we've been traveling with different uh, hearings and understandings and perspectives from a variety of gospels since Easter, since the reporting and the accounting of Jesus's resurrection. And we as hearers have heard a variety of authors report um, different disciples and different, people of faith experience with the resurrected Christ. However, if we limit our perspective to Matthew's telling of the narrative, Matthew's hearers have not up until this point had a common shared experience with the resurrected Christ. Um, We are in the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel, which opens with the women with Mary going to the tomb and Mary encounters and the guards encounter, and then they are sent out to go and tell. But this, this, this ladder, these latter verses which we call the great commission are the disciples first encounter with the resurrected Christ. Which I think this is, you know, it's important. They haven't been traveling um, oh, these many days, as we have with um, the resurrected Christ appearing on the road to Emmaus um, or eating fish um, and breaking bread with the resurrected Christ on the seashore. so uh, from matthew 's account, this is the first appearance of the resurrected Christ to the disciples um, and so it seems it, 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 it seems to me good and right. Um, that, that doubt is a, is a part of that experience, that hesitation, that wavering um, is, is, a, is a part of that experience, even as they're in the midst of worshiping him. Um, it's, I find it fascinating because if you had told me, Sarah, we're going to talk about when we gather um, the Great Commission I've been like, oh, great, we're going to go, therefore, we're going to make, this, we're going to make disciples, baptizing them. <laughs> Wonderful. Good. I love it. Never in, a, never in a million years would I have said we are going to have a conversation about doubt and faith. And yet when I went and this is the text and I revisited the text, what is it that jumps out at me about this particular, these particular verses? Doubt doubt. What is it about the human condition? What is it about the human condition that there is such a familiarity about these verses? And yet, and I guarantee when we revisit these, the next time we revisit Matthew, I'm going to be surprised that that doubt is in this pericope. It's something that gets pushed. It gets pushed back um, in my memory. Of, these, of this experience and of these verses. And yet, in my encounter with them, it comes to the forefront. Which I, which I say that to say, I think that that's just part of, and I, I think I might be jumping it, of the, the dance of doubt and faith. That's how, that's how our brains um, are wired and work um, when we experience crises and when we experience trauma. And we need to not forget, as modern Christians, that the crucifixion of Jesus was a traumatic experience, um, particularly for those folks who walked the journey with Jesus um, in this life. And so, to have doubt is is a natural and a health—I would say—a healthy human response. Um, to the experience. And so we we ought to expect that that is also a natural and a human response um, for us to have at different parts of our journeys, particularly when we're met with moments of crises and trauma.
1: I agree. Um, I have two situations that I'll share. First, in college, as a rising college senior, we were doing the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder. It's a, a wonderful piece, uh, premiered at the Edinburgh International Theater Festival in 1938, I think. Um, it, it's an everyman story, but it's done with what I would call just the bare minimum of stage direction and costuming and um, set design. The, the hallmark of the piece is, is the, the character, the stage manager this person or this character is the um, companion of the audience through the whole play. And in the play, they encounter all the hallmarks or, or, or moments or the fulcrum elements of a life. So there's um, child rearing, there's a wedding, there's, um, they experience loss or death, and then there's you know, back to child rearing. So there's this wonderful arc of the story and the stage manager walks with the audience throughout the whole play, hardly ever leaving the stage, having massive blocks of monologue and text with the audience, speaking directly to the audience, which at the moment or at the time, this breaking of the fourth wall was really um, earth-shaking. In my rising to be a senior in college. My work was, my, my my theater work, I should say, I was in theater, I was a theater major with a double in voice, and I was um, cast as the stage manager in this play. And I was terrified. And I was terrified because I understood the, the, the complexity of the role, I understood the, the weight of the role and the importance of the role, and I didn't think I had it in me. I didn't think I had that kind of... Um, Uh, opportunity in me and somebody said to me why do you think that and I was like because I've never done this before and I and the person said well I happen to be the director of the play who cast me he said I think you have it in you and and so it was one of those moments of can I do it and I think we all have those moments of great opportunity where your feet somehow don't want to move forward and yet you must, and it turned out fine. It turned out as I had hoped it would and as the director hoped it would, and it, it was a wonderful experience from an actor's standpoint, but it was one of those moments where the doubt of my own capability was what was holding me back. The second element that I can speak to about how this works in real life is um, panic attacks run in our family. Um, These seem to most often occur when one of us does not share the anxiety they feel and it grows to a state of overwhelming. And in our family system, we have found that giving voice to that which feels insurmountable helps dismantle the sense of being overwhelmed. But it requires dialogue. Our family has worked to become a safe place for vulnerability. And I think that's an important characteristic. Um, it was true in the stage manager's role. You have to be vulnerable with the audience. The audience has to yield to you as a, as a person. So I think there's that element of vulnerability in that story as well. That says we are by no means perfect in our family, but we endeavor to try when the need arises. I think that's the other characteristic. I wonder if this might be helpful when it comes to doubt as well. Do we, is it, is it a part of the charge that Jesus issues to these disciples and in turn to us as well? Is it a matter of necessity that doubt is a part of the story? And I think we touched on it, all three of us have said, yeah, I think it is. Um, and, and do we work to provide safe spaces in our relationships with each other, at work, at church, that lets the family of faith bring their doubts and their vulnerabilities into our conversations safely and well with welcome. I said this might be an intentionality towards safety and trustworthiness. Um, it might be just as important as sharing how we feel about our faith. And I think that, for me, was the big moment of epiphany in this study this week, is might this encourage others to feel more included in our faith communities if we built intentionality into it um, for safety and for trustworthiness? I wonder about the interplay and the exchange with God when I acknowledge my doubts. Is it like in our family system, if we articulate that which is making us feel overwhelmed, it suddenly opens up an intimacy that wasn't there before. And I think that in doing that with God, it invites God to be more present in our families, in our personal lives, and in our our congregations. And I think that there's something magical about that. And I don't know if magical is the right word. It might be miraculous. Or it might be God waiting for us to discover the Easter egg that he's given us. So that's my thoughts about that. Um, second question, and Nicole, I'm coming to you. How does this dance or movement between faith and doubt impact your daily life, your work enterprise, and your relationships?
2: I think that uh, the dance impacts daily lives as Almost a corrective, I think it serves as a corrective. <laughs> this dance, um, it or a preventative measure might be another way to think of it, because it it does for me. It 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 helps me resist what Don. I think I heard you referring to in your first answer in terms of this certainty. Um, I think that often the ways in which we articulate our faith can lead us to a to a false place of kind of certitude where we are able to draw a line in the sand and stand on one side as if, and, and we are able to stand there and it's rock solid. And it's like if there's any shaking, if there's any wavering, that somehow then we're not within this community of of faith. In my experience, and as I as I as I as I watch um, as I watch the world, <laughs> it, it seems to me that those who are unable to acknowledge the dance often get often pushed those who are able to do the dance into a place of um feeling less than in their faith, as as inadequate in their faith, and 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 yet they and they also have this there's this, there's this arrogancy as if everything is just figured out and and it goes to dangerous places um very often, it goes to dangerous places, and uh, that's, that's frightening. Um, that's, that's scary. Um, as humans, I, can, uh, I have the ability and the gift to be able to know God, to be able to understand God as God reveals God's self to me in and through this journey of life but it is never a fully developed knowledge. I I am never going to ever fully be able to articulate (laughs) who God is and the depths of God's love and what God through Christ did for the world. Um, That is simply going to be, um, my hope is that at at one stage in this, trajectory of life when I get to not this finite life that all will be revealed. (laughs) I mean, that's my, that's my hope is I will one day be able to be in complete and full relationship and knowledge. Um, But, but in the here and the now it is, it is a dance and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful dance. It is a beautiful dance. And I think one of the hardest things for uh, those of us who journey with people of faith, I think whether you do it professionally or whether you do it avocationally, um, it is being with folks who feel in moments of doubt as if they have failed, who feel as if they are not worthy of saying that they are followers of Jesus, um, because there is something that has them questioning uh, where God is, or questioning the meaning of something, or has them questioning kind of the the reason why certain things happen. It, it's that that horrible cliche of you know everything happens for a reason. Well. I you know I, I actually don't think that everything happens for a reason in the sense that it's a god ordained reason. I think that God is able to work in and through everything. Um that I that I do believe I do believe God is able to come into situations and um, and is able to work in and through even the most traumatic devastating things. Um but do those things happen for a reason? Uh you know, I no. <laughs> no. And I think that when we have this, when we remove the a space for doubt and a life of faith, then we place ourselves in this role of, of certitude and then we project to the world that there is that there is not a dance. And if you're dancing, then you're doing something wrong. Um so how does this dance in my life? It serves as a corrective. It serves as a reminder um it It serves as a gift that what am I? I am human. Thanks be to God. I am a child of God, and I am able to have that knowledge, but I am human in that identity. Oh wow. I agree. Um,
1: So in my work, I'm a bookkeeper for a law firm. It's a quiet, thoughtful, responsive job. Um, I like being and appearing capable and resourceful. The word like is important there. That doesn't mean I am capable and that I am resourceful. I just like being thought of as capable and resourceful. And when others need assistance, I'm happy to help. I mean, I think we can all approach what we do for a living with that same kind of look and feel. Um, But I am by no means any kind of expert when it comes to the practice of law. I'll I'll be first to say that, I have no idea. Um, And I learn daily from legal assistants and paralegals and attorneys about this practice, how they do it, how the business runs, What's essential to keeping that business in full motion? Um, And I'm compelled to ask questions. And when asked, I can offer solutions. In turn, sometimes I must push for answers to successfully accomplish the role I've been asked to do for the firm, and to keep the whole firm in mind about the wholeness and the wellness of the financials. So that kind of goes hand in hand. I find, or I have found, um, it, it is most often fear and anxiety that um, uh, the anxiety of appearing incapable that prevents me from sharing my feelings about being overwhelmed. And it's my fear because I don't want to burden someone else. I, don't, I, I should be able to figure this out on my own. You know, that kind of mantra that we um, have been given about bootstraps and picking things up and moving forward as if asking for help was some kind of weakness. And I think that that's um, essential to faith. You need to ask for help. Community And, Don, you hinted at it in the answer you gave to the first question. I think community is an essential element of, of church growth. And I think that that sense of feeling included and welcome is valuable. Um, so at work, this debilitating thought cycle is easy to break because I know nothing about the law. And so it makes it easier for me to go, I'm, I'm, I'm woefully ignorant in this particular realm, S- help me. And I'm easy, it's easy to say, help me. But in places where I have a, an artificial sense of knowledge or capability, um, I, I find I get into the weeds really fast. So it's at home where I fail the most. And I think that my, it's my downfall when I commit the sin of arrogance. And, um, and I commit this sense of self-reliance, and I think that's a sin as well, um, because I feel like I don't need to reach out and ask for assistance. No relationships are built or strengthened when I struggle in isolation. I think that's important, as no one's invited to be in a closer relationship when I struggle with independence. Um, my independence grows but my interpersonal relationships suffer. And maybe there's something to be gained by growing more comfortable in feeling vulnerable. And I think that, that that's a walk of faith with God as well, is realizing where I stop and God starts. There's that, that moment of interplay. And in some things, it's really simple for me to see God starts here. I take a breath, and I can move forward. Um, in some places, it's—it's. It's, uh, I, I tend to, as Kenny would say in his sermon on Sunday, we have two pockets, a little pocket and a big pocket. The big pocket is the never-ending resource of God's spirit in our world, and the little pocket is our own ability. And I tend to want to go to the little pocket and get what I need to solve a particular problem, instead of reaching into the big pocket and asking God to step forward and assist, or or solve, or or work towards something with me, so that I'm more capable. And so I, I think this feeling of vulnerability for me, I'm not comfortable with it, and I and I'm I'm often challenged by by feeling that way. And I think that's uh, the work I'm doing in my dance. What about you, Don? Um, how does uh, the movement between faith and doubt affect your daily life, your work enterprise, and your relationships?
0: Well, you, I was going to highlight, you said more vulnerability, more comfort in vulnerability. but I don't know, well, from my personal perspective, I don't know if we can do that for ourselves. We need other people. So I would connect that to the call, to the mission. But thinking of what Nicole was talking about, you know, it's, uh, should we rewrite the Great Commissions? Should we rewrite the end of the chapters of the Synoptic Gospels to say, and at the end he said, go forth to all the world and make sure everybody knows the gospel of failure? I mean, if we evade the faith and doubt conundrum, then we're going to end up with one of these absolutes, which is the gospel of failure. It just has nothing to do with everything in Matthew that leads up to this point. So I, I, I really believe this, what you're calling the dance, Sarah, is uh, at the center of the human condition and and how we relate to each other and how we hear each other and how we can call for help and vulnerability. If uh, if I I think one of you said, uh, if asking for help shouldn't be viewed as a weakness, well, in the gospel of failure, if that's what the Great Commission is, then it will still be a weakness forever and ever. Amen. Because we choose to label it that way, and there's not a darn thing one individual can do about it. If the world is telling me that that's a failure. Or my expression of doubt is a failure or weakness. So be it. And that's how powerful destruction the absolute of the faith is too. The human faith, you know, it's it's, it's, it's it can lead to violence. It's it's isolating. So I I think. There's a common language of doubt that's out there for us, and it's really accessible. You ask about the everyday. It, you know, just thinking through this, like I'm looking at my agenda, in my mind, what I'm going to see today, who am I going to speak with that isn't balancing what they can and cannot discuss and the hardships of their lives, usually evaded. And, and in my own heart, well. So we've got two people that may have lunch together today, and we're both evaded. I think the gospel is meant to break through all of that and confront the doubt. And I think that's where the spirit is found, too. I don't know if the spirit's in any of the absolutes. The last few weeks, Nicole, you know, our pharmacy own on lectionary. Like, a lot of the churches and people that listen to this podcast, and we've been talking about the breath of the spirit. Well, the spirit seems to be in this dance, not in the absolutes at all. Uh, so, uh, and it's so important the author of of Matthew felt it had to be reported, just as a basic fact. And w- one example I'll give you is I think it ca- the, hu- the human condition and, and where it is with the spirit is so powerful for me. I was reading through the weekend. I was reading literature, and everything popped out, all the subjects. And no matter what I read, it was there. It becomes a dance of accessibility to community and each other. So I'm just going to give you a simple example. I could have chosen thousands of notations, but uh, there's a poem called A Doubt from 1994, and the author is Lisa Russ Sparr. and I'm just going to read a notation from that. Now listen to this little teeny notation. The way that for just a moment after the rib cage sinks in a house where someone is dying, there is the silence so deep it is impossible to tell its source. This forms. that's a fragment of a poem called Death. Now, is it heresy that I think that's beautiful? Or does it resonate with me because I got a brother or a sister that is expressing that? Is it, is it proper for my faith to deny the existence of that conversation? Is it proper for me to, you know, as we were discussing the last few minutes, to say no? I'm drawn to this. And those notations of our life are fully accessible to us so we can have a conversation with each other. And I think the spirit lives in that. I challenge pick up any book or poem, watch any program, anything that somebody's put some thought in, and not find these these opportunities for us to connect with each other. That's what I've got.
1: Well, it's great stuff. Um my third question is both those who doubted and those who did not We're included in Jesus' final instructions here. What difference does the community of faith make then? And what experience do you have with this? Um, All I can say is I am so grateful that there's room in this text for those of us who doubt to stand in the family of faith with those that have faith or that have more faith right now And and that we're all gathered for the same instruction. Um, That there's room for those of us that live with doubts that are working toward faith. And it's just grace upon grace upon grace and blessings upon blessings upon blessings continually. What do you think, Nicole?
2: I think it's a beautiful thing that both are included. I think that it's not only that the folks uh, with doubt are sort of a, oh, sure, we're al- we'll allow you in this space to come in with us as if we have something, to, you know, it, it's not just that the people of faith have something to share with the people of doubt. Like, this, this is a part of the Great Commission, which to me means that because they both are here in Jesus's final instructions and in this snapshot from Matthew's gospel, that not only do the people of faith have something to share with the people who are experiencing doubt, but the people who are experiencing doubt play a role and are there. They are there and have something to share with those who in that moment are not experiencing doubt. Both are, I believe vital components to the communities being able to live out the instructions of Jesus. I don't believe that the community is able to live out faithfully Jesus' instructions if one is without the other. I think, it, I, 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 I think it's very intentional um, and I think it's very powerful And I think it's something that we need to be mindful of. Both have something to say to the other. Oh, I
0: like Thank you.
2: Don, what about you? What do you think?
0: I'm glad it's in the passage. Thank you uh, for raising this in this week's questions. And we have a lot of folks that uh, listen to the podcast, Nicole, who are moderating classes or preparing for sermons or uh, facilitating discussions in classes and, uh, you know, these are three questions that, right, don't be afraid. Fear not. <laughs> Dealing with this dance is okay. It opens up the room because we all have that together. And as the Matthew reporter talks about some doubt, and I, I want to say that maybe the reporter wasn't paying full attention because it gives the sense that if I look to my right or my left, I may see faith or I may see doubt. There's a doubt. There's a faith. There's a doubt. And it's almost binary. And I think I he think missed something. Which is you there's there's doubt and faith. Some doubted, but um within us is doubt. He miss he missed the internal part of it. I just think that we could elaborate. I think a little more footnote, please, thank you. And and to have fun with it, uh in N.T. writes The Resurrection of the Son of God, he he gets he gets almost uh silly or humorous about it. And I love it as a breakthrough, that it's okay to have this conversation. He says, quote, the strongest mark of authenticity in this paragraph, referring to these final verses, is the jarring note, but some doubt. Matthew only has the 11 there. How many is some? Two or three? Which ones? Were their doubts resolved? What form did their doubts take? We want to know. And again, Matthew leaves us in the dark. What's the fun of this. And I I appreciate that that scholarly writer going into a bit of humor here because it's true. What are you thinking? But it takes a boldness, not the absolute of faith, a boldness to go, how are you doing? What happened to you? You know, that sounds familiar. I do think the language of doubt is is universal if we dare to speak it. And and I want to wrap up with the... uh, the dangers, and, and the violences of absolute doubt and absolute faith in the human capacity. And I'm going to do one more point. And this is by Augustine Bowie. And it's called Doubt as well from 1993. It's very quick. And it talks about it's almost a beware, for me a beware. These extremes are powerful. We are powerful in this condition, this human condition of how we deal with things. Things happen when we Evade or make choices about the absolute. So here it goes. Faith can move mountains. Let the mountains be, for when mountains stir, there is no peace even in the sea. Doubt dares not touch the heft of stone. For fear, it's better, much better, leave things alone. So that's my wrap up, Sarah. And uh, I see we're out of time, but uh, Sarah, you're on point today. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we say goodbye? I think doubt is important. I think people need to bring it. And Nicole, thank you for being with us today. Nicole has been with us in the past, been far too long, and will be with us in the future. And it's just a pleasure to have you with us. And Speaking of Nicole and Nicole's church, where she's an associate pastor, Palmasia Presbyterian Church that makes the podcast possible is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org, where you will find outstanding sermons by Nicole and Mm -hmm. other
1: pastors.
0: (laughs) The opportunity to take communion, outstanding music, reflection, prayers, discussions of scripture, often the lectionary scripture, and, oh, my goodness, differences of opinion, discussions of doubt and faith. So check that out. We always commend that to you, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.